Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. He said, if it did happen, you wanted it to happen. But otherwise, if you didn't want it, then you're just making it up and you're trying to um, put a bad name on, on a good man. Which, by the way, I'd never even told them the name of the guy that did it. So why he thought it was a good man, I don't know. But he, So he told me that either I wanted it or that I was making it up. So I told him that, that neither of those were true. Why would a, a 17-year-old want a first experience to be with a 50-year-old? Um, and so he basically, the conversation came down to, I was a pathological liar. I had mental issues. And if I did not recant on the phone with him right then that he was going to scream it from the pulpit, that everyone was going to know and that his words, all hell was going to break loose for me. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have Bridget CV on the show today. Uh, excited to discuss her story. Uh, Bridget, can you just tell me a little bit about how you got introduced to the IFB movement and um, kind of what your early memories of the movement were? Well, uh, my name is Bridget. I am mom of a five-year-old. Um, I was introduced to IFB um, very early. Um, the la- the first one I remember, I believe I was three years old, uh, when we started going to a church, but I know that my parents were in an IFB church even before that. So, uh, it's kind of just been, that's, I've always been in an IFB just until the last couple of years playing sports at IFB. I volunteered at different churches and things like mm-hmm. that. So I've kind of always been connected in a very deep way <laughs> to the IFB. Right. Um, so were, were your early memories in the movement, I mean, positive? I know when you start that young, uh, it's kind of all you know. Uh, but did you did you have positive feelings for the movement? Did you feel like it was just, just normal at the time? Or was it something you always felt kind of uncomfortable in? 
I thought it was normal. Um, that is all I, I knew. I mean, from school to sports to church, every day of the week was something to do with an IFB church. So I didn't really think that anything was unusual. Um, I mean, literally the church that I went to, I wanted to be buried in the back corner of the property. Like I loved that church. Mm. So I didn't really see anything being unusual at the time until I was um, 17. So that's kind of when the glasses got taken off and everything kind of came, all the weird stuff came to the forefront of my mind. So Sure. So what was it that removed those glasses? What was it that kind of got rid of kind of the the bubble um, that you had in that movement? So uh, I actually had a sexual assault that occurred at the hand of one of my coworkers and um, the reaction by my pastor is what very abruptly took off those rose colored glasses. Um, Mm. Yeah. I mean that it was very sudden for me. Right. So it was someone outside the church where this happened. It was a coworker totally removed from that, but, but going to the pastor, what was his response? Was it just angry? Like what was kind of his reaction? So um, I guess I'll kind of start sort of from the beginning. I won't go into too much detail, but um, I, and it wasn't even a paid job. I was volunteering at a VA hospital um, trying to get a scholarship for college. Um, I graduated from, from high school a year early and started college right away. Um, So I was working to get a scholarship and I was 17 at the time. And the, the guy that I worked with, was um, 50. I remember celebrating his 50th birthday um, at the at the VA hospital. So when this happened, I didn't know where to go. I didn't have a good relationship with my parents um, or anybody else really to where I felt like I could go to them for help. And I was also very shy um, to the point that, I mean, I couldn't ask for where something was in a grocery store because I didn't want people to talk to me. They want people to see me. So the idea of telling someone that this major thing has happened and then having to see them every Sunday, twice and every Wednesday, I was not keen on that idea. So what I did was I went to a youth pastor and his wife that I had known for years because our churches always did things together. Mm. um, And they were about four hours away from me. So I drove over there on a Wednesday night. And, um, I shared, I didn't really intend on sharing, but it just kind of came out in the moment. And Mm -hmm. it was probably three months after the assault had taken place. Um, so I told them and they were very helpful. They were very encouraging and loving, and they did not know that there was a reason I didn't tell my pastor. Right. And we can get to that in a little bit, but, um, So what they did several days later is they called my pastor Hmm. and told them, told him what had happened and said that, you know, I needed, I needed help and I needed support. Right. So what they they did. Oh, sorry. No, I was going to say, so they were well-intentioned trying to get you some kind of form of help from your pastor. Um, And they they were so removed from me that they couldn't really be there for me. Got it. Got it. So what was his response when they, when they contacted him? So I don't know what he told them, but he called me at about 7.30 in the morning and um, just started laying into me about how dare I 
go to another church and now I've got another church involved in my drama and you know, I'm just trying to get attention and why didn't you come to me? And then it went to, it kind of shifted to, it didn't happen. You're lying. You're making it up. And kind of what he said was, um, he said, if it did happen, you wanted it to happen. But otherwise, if you didn't want it, then you're just making it up and you're trying to, um, put a bad name on, on a good man, which by the way, I'd never even told them the name of the guy that did it. So why he thought it was a good man. I don't know, but he, so he told me that either I wanted it or that I was making it up. So I told him that that neither of those were true. Why would a a 17 year old want a first experience to be with a 50 year old? Mm -hmm. Um, And so he basically, the conversation came down to, I was a pathological liar. I had mental issues. And if I did not recant on the phone with him right then that he was going to scream it from the pulpit that everyone was going to know and that his words, all hell was going to break loose for me. Hmm. So of course I didn't want that to happen. I went four hours from home because I didn't want people around me to know what had happened to me. So um, I said, fine, it didn't happen because I don't want you to say it from the pulpit. Hmm. I don't want everybody to know about it. And so then he again laid into me about how I have psychological issues and I'm a pathological liar, all these really delightful, encouraging things from my pastor. Um, And then I just kind of shut down in that moment. He hung up and that was kind of, I, I don't know what else to say about like that, that, that was almost worse in some ways than the original mm. assault because right. this person I had known and trusted at that point for 16 years. Yeah. And this is how he's going to react to a teenager in his church being assaulted by a 50 year old. Right. So that was really hard. Uh, you, you I mean, obviously his response when the information did get to him was crazy. I mean, crazy. Um, but you you mentioned a few minutes ago, you said that you hadn't told him earlier for a reason. So, so you mentioned like obviously trusting him, you know, and respecting him for all that time, but what was it inside you where you were like hesitant in the first place to go to him and, and address the subject? So this is probably what all of the kids in the church experienced, but to me at the time I felt very singled out by it. Um, but I was always kind of made out to be a liar and that I just wanted attention. And that kind of comes from, um, I was in an abusive home, not necessarily even at the hands of my parents, but at the hands of my older brother. And so I always had bruises on me somewhere. Mm. Um, and I mean, I had bruises on me sometimes that I couldn't cover with clothing because you can't exactly wear a long sleeve turtleneck in August. Right. You know, um, so anytime there was a bruise showing, I was responsible for that. And I was just trying to get attention. Right. Like nobody held my brother responsible for leaving bruises all over my body, but I was responsible if I didn't cover them up well enough. Right. So, and I never even said anything. I never told anyone that my brother was, was beating me up. Of course at the time, again, I didn't know that that wasn't what everybody else was going through too. I thought that was just a brother thing. Yeah. Um, I knew that not everybody else had bruises all the time, but 
I just didn't really think anything of it. So I wasn't actively trying to tell someone that right. was happening. Because in but your mind, you're like, what's even going to happen? Sure. Exactly. Right. Um, because, I mean, if, if anybody ever did see the bruises, nobody said anything. Nobody ever asked about it until I was about 14. Um, and that's actually part of the story, too. But um, so it was just always if anybody questioned that I have a bruise, it was me. I was trying to get attention. But mm. I, did, I can't be lying if I didn't even say anything. You know what I mean? Right. So it was just, it was a really awkward relationship between him and I because, yeah. Right, right. Um, so what was kind of the, um, I mean, would you say that in the church you were in that that kind of stuff was fairly normal? Like the more physical abuse, like among other people, like did other people not register it as being odd either? I know you mentioned someone noticed something at like 14 and asked about it, but was it something that, you know, is it something you felt like was pretty common in the family dynamics of the people at the church? I don't think that it was common. I think it was just, we were in such a stifled environment that you just don't, you don't talk about it. You don't ask about it. If the pastor says something, then you're allowed to say something. But if the pastor is not addressing it, then why would anybody else in the church address it? Sure. Um, Because you know, the, the uh, pastoral staff was all knowing so yeah. if they didn't bring it up, then you weren't supposed to bring it up either. Right. So what, what happened with this person who did bring it up when you were 14? What was what prompted them to say something about it? Okay. So I played softball. Um, at It was church leagues. Okay. Uh, and it was with a different um, independent Baptist church in the area. So there was one time that I was playing softball and I had a bruise. And I don't, I don't even remember what happened. Some of the things are so vague and blurry to me, but I had a bruise that went from the top of my shoulder and wrapped around all the way to the back of my elbow. And that had been from something that my brother had done. And so I was playing softball and I was wearing a t-shirt and just the bottom part of the bruise wasn't covered by the t-shirt. So my coach came up to me and said, Hey, what happened to your arm? Well, at 14 years old, having been bruised up my entire life, that's the first time anybody had ever said, Hey, what happened? So I didn't know what to say. I knew I wasn't going to tell him what happened. So I just said, I got hit by the softball. And he said, well, I don't, I don't think that's right. Do you mind if you roll up your sleeve and show me your arm? So I wasn't going to say no. So I rolled up my sleeve and showed him the bruise. And then he didn't say anything else about it. I just told him I get hit by the softball. Didn't say anything else to me about it. And I went on playing softball, but apparently uh, he went to the pastor of his church mm. and said that he suspected that there was someone on his team that was being abused. So then the pastor of that church went to my pastor mm. and my pastor called my dad. Um, and I love my dad and my dad and I have a very different relationship now than we did growing up. Um, so I'll try to be somewhat respectful of him, but he was, he had a lot of anger issues. Um, and that, whew, um, so my pastor called my dad and okay. said that I had claimed that I was being abused and, um, which mind you remember, I didn't actually say anything. Right. Um, but he said that I was claiming abuse and that I was trying to get attention from another church now. And, um, and he told, my dad told me that the pastor said to him, if he, my dad 
did not take care of the problem that the pastor would come and take care of it for him. Me, which in my mind means that he was going to whoop me if my dad didn't mm. whoop me well enough. So, and I say whooping because spanking just doesn't fit what took place that night. Right. Um, so my dad walked in and we were having dinner and he, I've never seen anybody in my life so angry mm. and he sent my brothers to bed and then he just started wailing on me. Um, it was all on my backside, but just started whooping me, whooping the fire out of me, as we say in the South. <laughs> um, and he didn't even tell me why. I had no idea for the first probably 30 minutes of this happening that I had no idea what I was even being right. for. Um, but he would go just 20 or 30 times and then he would just start screaming at me. And he said, you know, if I'm going to claim a, abuse, he's going to show me what that looks like. And then we would just start going again and I'm screaming and my mom is just sitting on the couch watching this happen. She's not saying anything or doing anything. She doesn't even know at this point what I'm being whooped for. Um, and it just went on and that went on for the best of my knowledge was about two hours. Um, and it was 20 or 30 licks or whatever you want to call them. And then he would start screaming at me and I was trying to figure out why I was being punished. And so I get, I got little bits of, and pieces of the reason kind of throughout um, the whole ordeal. And he said that, you know, I claimed abuse. And then he said that um, I was a liar and told me that the, the pastor had called him and said this. And I was like, okay, well, that's not true. That's not what happened. And he just kept going. He kept trying to get me to say that I lied. Well, at that point in my life, I was not about to concede and say that I said something I didn't say. I was not going to be blamed for something I didn't do. So I had kind of accepted it, that I was just going to get beat all night long because I right. was not about to say that I lied. That, that's not who I was. Yeah. Um, so he just kept going and going and going. And then he stopped at one point and mind you, I'm screaming in the living room and my brothers are in their bedroom. And so at one point he went in and he got my older brother and he brought him out. And he said, did you hit her? And he said, no. He said, go to bed. And when I say go to bed, I mean go to sleep. And then he just started wailing on me again. It's like, okay, so my brother leaves this massive bruise on me and he gets one question and I'm the one getting right. healthy out of me. So um, then towards the end, <laughs> so then at one point, midst the be beating is the only word I can really think to describe it. Um, I said, I'm sorry. I am so sorry. I don't know what else to say. I'm sorry. And my mom finally chimes in and says, you're just sorry. You got caught. Hmm. I said, got caught for what? And then it started again. And so I was, I had a little bit of a rebellious streak in the sense that I did not like being misunderstood. Right. So I was going to say whatever I needed to say to get them to understand what happened. So then towards the end, um, my dad finally said, well, what did you say? <laughs> you whooped me for almost two hours. And then you asked me my side of the story. So I said, I didn't say anything. My coach saw the bruise and he started wailing on me again. And then he stopped almost mid swing and said, what bruise? Show me the bruise. So I rolled up my sleeve and I showed him the bruise. And when I tell you 
that my dad looked so defeated in that moment. It's like he realized that he had just beat his daughter for two hours for no reason. Cause I didn't lie. There was a bruise on my arm and, um, but he did it solely based on the opinion of what my pastor had told him. Right. Um, so that permanently changed the dynamic of mine and my dad's relationship, but then also just mm-hmm. my dad in general. Um, I found out much later that he never trusted anything the pastor said again after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was why I don't tell, I didn't, I didn't tell my pastor that. So, right. um, after that happened, I was bruised literally from the middle of my back to the back of my knees. Mm-hmm. I was just like a solid bruise. I couldn't sit down. I couldn't even, he, after he was done, he just said, go to bed. So, okay. So I went in my bedroom and I could not even bend my legs enough to get in the bed. I just laid on my stomach on the floor and cried myself to sleep. Uh, but then of course life must go on. Um, so Sunday rolls around and I have to go to church. So I had to lay in the back seat of the van to be transported to the church to then roll myself out of the van. And I had to stand in the back of the church building because I could not physically sit in a pew. And the pastor came up to me that first Sunday and he put his arm around me and he said, did your dad take care of your problem? And I just said, yes, sir. And he walked away. And so it was just a really weird um, dynamic, but it was also my pastor and his wife both were very inaccessible to us. Right. We weren't, we weren't allowed to question things. I mean, heaven forbid question anything, but we weren't even allowed to talk to them. They weren't involved. They didn't know the congregation. They were inaccessible to everybody, not just the yes, like to, to everybody, not just, no, not just me or not just my family, just everybody. Right. They were inaccessible. Right. Um, I mean, he, he pastors the church, if you want to call it that. Um, but then he's never Shut, there Monday yeah, and Tuesday. Yeah. He's always at a different church. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, he's at a different church. So, um, yeah, it was very, very inaccessible. So there was never a, a relationship even between me and him. So the idea of coming to him with this massive thing that just happened to me, that it was not even a possibility to me. Right. So. Right. So fast forwarding back to, you know, 17, the, the glasses completely shatter off at that point. Where, where do you find yourself? Like what, what's kind of the next step there um, kind of coming out of this and like saying, okay, obviously my best interests aren't in mind here. Um, was it a decision to just say like, okay, I'm out of this movement. Is it, I'm going to just, you know, bide my time, go off to college. Like what was kind of the next step for you there? So looking back now is it's insane to me, but I did not leave the church then Hmm. because, and I think the big reason for that is every church in the area had been preached against for my entire life. So I didn't think there was another good church in the area because every church that was there had been preached against from the pulpit. So I stayed and, and actually I did confront him probably, um, probably two or three weeks later after the phone call. Hmm. Um, I said, I texted him and I said, Hey, can I talk to you and your wife after church? Um, whatever. I think it was a Wednesday. 
Right. And he didn't respond. But then after church, he was like, hey, come, come sit down. And he wouldn't, like his wife was not there. He said he didn't want his wife involved in my drama. Right. Um, being the pastor's wife, of course, you wouldn't want to actually talk to people. But um, he sat me down in the back pew with people still everywhere in the church. So it wasn't even a private conversation. And I just told him, I didn't lie. I didn't make this up. This really happened. I'm not in a good place and I need help. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I need help. And he sat there and listened. And so for a brief moment, I thought, okay, he's, he's really listening to me. He's going right. to respond with compassion. He's going to help me. He's going to tell me what to do. But as soon as I stopped talking, he very loudly um, just started laying into me again on how he doesn't understand what my problem is. And uh, I'm trying to bring down a good man. And then he went to, uh, again, a good man, but he didn't even know who it was. So heaven forbid you stand up for the 17-year-old in your church. Right. Um, but he, so he just kept going. And I just started crying. I was like, okay. And at that moment, it was like, all right, I can't stay here. I have to go. Um, so I just listened to him. And I have no idea what he said because I kind of just blocked him out at that point. Because then everybody else was listening. And so it was extremely embarrassing for me because he was not being private or mm -hmm. even on the down low about what he was saying. So uh, he was just kind of sharing my business with everybody that could hear him. So I got up and I, I left the church. I walked out and again, I didn't know where to go. So I kept going to that church, but I don't remember anything he preached after that. Mm -hmm. I could not listen. I sat there and I stared at, there's one spot that was, in almost towards the choir loft and I would literally stare at that spot. So it looked to anybody that was paying attention, like I was paying attention, but I was not, I was staring at it and my mind was a thousand miles away. Yeah. I didn't leave right away. And it, I actually stayed for almost a year after that, which is insane for me to think about mm -hmm. that. I went there for that long after that. But during that time, um, it was, it started actually about the same time that the assault had taken place. I started being followed by a man in the church. Um, he was 30 years older than me. So at the time that it started, he was 47 and I was 17. Um, now the legal term for this is stalking, even though it, it I mean, it was just kind of a weird thing. It wasn't violent. Yeah. It was just awkward because this guy that I've known my entire life and actually who was very much involved in abuse that happened when I was a kid was now following me around. Um, and I didn't know there was anything I could do about it. So I just kind of put up with it for, right. and it went on for two years. So while all this other stuff is happening and I'm disconnecting myself from the church, this guy is honing in on me and following yeah. me. And of course he knows what he did when I was a kid, but nobody else in the church does. So it's just crazy to me that a 17 year old is being a, you know, a 47 year old man is taking interest in a 17 year old and nobody says anything in the church. Right. That seems weird to me. Um, but it got to the point that he was following me to work. Um, and it got to the point that he was there so often. My manager made me start calling the police every time I got off because he would be waiting outside to walk into my car. Um, and it was very strange. So then after several police encounters, they told me that, I didn't have to just put up with it that I could get a restraining order against him or it was an order of protection, I think is the technical right. term for it. Um, so I started that process 
And of course he violated that within 24 hours of getting served with it, which was interesting. Um, but <laughs> just to kind of come full circle on the relationship with the pastor of the church, once I did have enough to, to take him to court and to get a permanent order of protection against him, the pastor agreed to be a character witness on his behalf against me. Right. Again, at this time, a 49 year old versus right. a 19 year old. Yeah. Um, I mean, a 19, I think this has been mentioned on the show before, but 19 in IFB years is like 12 in right. years. Yeah. So I was very, very sheltered. Um, but yeah, so he agreed to be a character witness on behalf of this man that's been stalking me for two years. Um, oh. Of course, the judge threw that out, uh, which he was not happy about. But yeah. so I got and it was right after I left the church, actually. So I left the church right before I went to court to get the restraining order. Um, and just to speak of the relationship I had with my parents, he called my parents the day that he got served with the order of protection, which violated the order of protection um, <laughs> that he called my parents. and was like, what is wrong with her? She's got a problem. And my parents tried to talk me out of getting an order of protection. So they didn't have any concerns with an almost 50 year old following around their teenage daughter. They just didn't want me to make him look bad. Um, and I think that's a very IFB mindset. Um, but anyway, so in that process, I ended up leaving the church. I found another church that was really good. It was an independent fundamental Baptist church. Uh, they don't consider themselves that anymore. Um, but it, I mean, they're a really, really good church. And so I started going there when I got the restraining order and I just never looked back and I never talked to the pastor again. He saw me in a restaurant one time and reached up to shake my hand. And I said, nah, I'm good. And that was like such a, prideful moment for me which sounds terrible but i just had no respect for him from that point on you were pretty much did you stay outside of that world completely after that point or was it was there any drawback you know to that um past high school like did you consider going to like a college or anything like that or was it pretty much just kind of staying out of that world completely so uh, another rebellious streak that I had was that <laughs> I wanted to be a firefighter paramedic. Got it. Which was very much looked down upon because I was a woman. Right. You have to wear pants as a firefighter. Heaven forbid. Um, so when I went to school, that's what I went to school for. I went straight to um, a community college and got my EMT certification. And then I went to fire academy. Right. Um, so I just began my career right away. Um, but as far as staying in IFB, I did. Uh, I went to a bit of, I mean, you know, the pastor that I'm speaking of. So, you know, that's a yeah. very extreme. Well, that's what I keep asking because I know, I know that without giving away anything, I mean, he's a big name and I know that to find a church in the era you were in that wasn't connected would be a very hard feat. <laughs> very, it was. And the church that I ended up going to was just this tiny little, I was a charter member. I think there were maybe 30 or 40 of us total. Right. Um, so, and it was new. So it was, I think I felt like that was a safe choice. Because, right. Yeah. It was, it was fresh. It was really a fresh start for me, but it was still IFB. Um, they did not have a lot of the same mindsets, which is why they don't consider themselves IFB anymore. Um right. 
they are still you know KJV. But sure. As far as the crazy women are less than men, that kind of mindset, very yeah. controlled. They don't. They're not like that. Um, okay. So then I ended up moving. I decided I needed to just get out of that state. So sure. before the order of protection was up, that was kind of my goal. I wanted to right. get out of the state before the order of protection was up, so I didn't have to deal with that again. Got it. Um, so that's what I did. I moved to Florida, um, and started going to a church that's on the abuser database, and immediately was like, "Oh no, <laughs> we're right. not here. This is yeah. not happening." And so I went to another version of IFB that was a bit tamer, but still kind of a cultish, not as extreme as the one I was in, but, but that's all I knew. So as far as religion was concerned, I thought that was right. right. So I tried to stay as close to the vest as I could, um, which ended up biting me in the butt later on, but yeah. Right. Got it. Um, so Obviously, I mean, you initially were going for paramedic for like the firefighter training and things like that. Um, and you're not doing that currently. Um, you're kind of staying in a similar vein of trying to like definitely helping people, but you're, you're pursuing criminal justice. Can you talk a little bit about how your experience kind of influenced that decision and um, what kind of pushed you specifically to that arena? Um, so I worked as a firefighter EMT. I never made it to paramedic uh, because I had an injury that kind of stopped me from going that far. But I always just wanted to help people on their worst day. Um, I had an injury when I was a kid that um, could have completely, it could have taken my life, but it could have altered my life. And so the paramedic really made a big impact on me in that, in that moment. So that kind of started the mindset of, I want to be there for people on their worst day. And then after that career ended because of an injury, um, I started rethinking things and thinking about my life. It's like, okay, I've been through this. I've been through childhood um, abuse. I've been through physical abuse. I've been through the sexual assault. Um, Now at this point, I've been through even a a domestic violence situation. So I tried to think of what can I do with all of these experiences what good can I do with it? What's the purpose of going through all of this stuff? Right. So I, I sought out criminal justice and um, spoke with a few people and decided that I'm going to go into the victim advocacy role. But I just feel like I've been through so many different scenarios even that that would be a good place for me to go. And I, I, I'm still religious. And so I feel like that's just kind of where God has adjusted me and kind of pushed me through my life to be at this point. Got it. So, yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, Has it been, obviously you're still in kind of the studying phase, the preparation phase for that. Um, Has there been anything that you've, you've learned or, or I guess been trained in that's helped you personally kind of work through some of the experiences you had and like helped you kind of contextualize some of the, the experiences that I know it can be hard to process Um, Has it been helpful in that way or? It has actually um, in several different ways. One of which being that now I know the statistics for all of these different things. And so, and actually even this podcast and the discussion group has kind of helped me not feel 
nearly as alone as I felt. I really felt like what was happening to me was so isolated. Right. This doesn't happen to people because we weren't allowed to talk about it. So I didn't know that this happens all the time. Right. Um, Just knowing the, the sheer amount of people that this has happened to makes me really just not feel so alone. And it kind of took off a lot of the guilt because it's, I've studied some of the predator side of things, right? their mindsets and knowing that those things were not my fault. I was yeah. just a child. Right. And so that has been really healing for me in a way. Um, and I hadn't really shared my story until just now, other than mm. I am writing a couple of books. Um, but nobody's read them. So it's like, I'm writing it down, but nobody has read them right. yet. Right. So right. yeah, it has been very helpful and it's kind of given me a power because in my most desperate time, I needed someone there. I needed someone to explain things to me and say, this is what you need to expect. And I had that when I was getting the order of protection against him, right. I had two victim advocates that walked with me every step of the way. They explained things. They answered my questions. They held my hand. They handed me tissues when I was bawling my eyes out in the courtroom. Like they were just there. Right. And so it's kind of given me a power that I didn't have before knowing that I can use this evil thing and I can put it to good and I can help somebody else that's going through it. And so that has been really healing for me as well. Just giving me a little bit of power. Right. No, that's, that's awesome. Um, so you mentioned writing a couple books. What's the, what's the topic? I'm assuming some of it's just your personal story, but kind of what's the direction with those and what are you hoping to accomplish with them? So um, I have two different ones. One of them is kind of just my story in a broad sense, just kind of an overview of not even specifics of what I've went through, but just lessons that I learned through those situations. Um, things that it, ways that it has changed me as a parent, ways that it has changed me as a friend. Um, and so that, and that one, I won't say the title yet because it's not official, but um, it's more just kind of breaking the cycles breaking the cycle of silence, breaking the cycle of abuse, um, you know, with amongst families, a lot of children that grow up in angry parent or angry households end up having an angry household themselves. And so it's really just about breaking those cycles and finding ways that work for you to get you out of those mindsets. Um, and then the other one, um, four years ago, I had a very violent situation that was going on. And so this one is more just kind of telling that story from start to finish. Um, right. I, I am fictionalizing it in a way. I'm not using anybody's specific names because um, I don't want to go through all the legal part of that. Right. Um, so it's set in a different town than it happened in. It's actually in a different state. Even. Um, but it's just my story from start to finish. And that one has been very healing because I've gotten to just pour my experience into that book. And so the purpose, the purpose of this last book, the the one that's in the more recent events really started as just healing for myself. I just wanted to write it. Um, But then it also, I didn't get to tell my side of the story when it was happening. Nobody asked me my side of the story. So this was a way of me just telling my side of the story. And then I'm hoping that maybe if anybody reads it in the future, that it 
will help them um, to see obviously that they're not alone, but then kind of give them some resources and the things that I used at the very end of the story to bring myself closure, to keep myself safe. Even um, I just want that to be a story that could maybe inspire somebody in some way. I'm not really sure. No, no, that's amazing. Yeah, no, it's awesome. And I know we've, we've talked a little bit beforehand and I just think it's really cool because I, I know that the, sometimes the default position that we find ourselves in, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I think sometimes we can, we can just want to move forward and not look back and, you know, just kind of push that down and keep moving. And, you know, I think there can be healthy ways to do that, to just, you know, move forward. But I think what you're doing too is like, you're not just moving forward past it. You're also doing things to help other people along with you. And I think that's really, really neat. And I think it is, um, you know, being able to write and creatively express a lot of that stuff is really helpful. Uh, so I think that's, I think that's awesome. Um, I am curious. I ask this to everybody, um, usually at the end of the episodes, but when you look back and reflect on the IFB movement as a whole, uh, one of the things that I constantly ask people is, do you think there's hope for the movement itself to change? Or I, I used to say be restored, um, but but for it to be improved, fixed, whatever word you want to throw in there, um, or do you think it's something where foundationally it's pretty flawed to where it creates a kind of a good habitation for this stuff to happen? Um, I do know of quite a few really good Baptist churches. They do not consider themselves IFB churches, which I think is what makes the difference. They're not in those major circles or camps or whatever you want to call it. As far as the IFB itself and the movement that we always get drawn down to, no, I don't Mm -hmm. think there's any hope for them. For the simple fact that they're based on something that's so fundamentally wrong. And so for them to change that, they wouldn't even be they wouldn't have the same beliefs. They wouldn't have the same doctrines. They wouldn't have the same foundation. So they wouldn't even be IFB anymore in, in many ways. Right. So no, I do think that there's hope for each individual church. I guess I should say that hmm. because if you open your mind and you say, okay, KJV is not the only one that's correct. Right. My version of worship is not superior to anyone else's. Um, I think that can give each individual church hope to kind of branch out from that. Right. But as far as the movement itself, I don't think there's any hope for that because I don't think they'd ever be willing to change that much. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, I mean, you kind of, uh, one thing I always say is like, I think the movement itself is definitely flawed. And I think, I mean, your experience was with someone who would be a a name that people know. I mean, that you don't get much higher in the IFB than some of the people that you were certain, and not even just one person. I mean, you, you mentioned a couple of people off mic that are super recognizable where it's like, there's no way to say like, well, that's not representative of what the movement is or what, or what at least the, the main section, I, I think the ones I'm finding that are, that are good churches tend to be the fringe outliers the ones that are like so disconnected they don't even know who people are um but the actual network itself just seems to just for whatever reason whether it's the cause or whether it just happens to be really bad coincidence which i don't think is the case 
it seems like there's just a lot of this stuff happening in a lot of the big churches in this, in this movement. But, um, but yeah, I appreciate you sharing and, and for kind of giving your perspective. And, um, like I said, I mean, it's really, it's just really cool to me that the criminal justice thing is just such a cool direction to go with this. And I'm really excited to see kind of what happens with that. And, um, I think it's going to be, I, I think it's going to, it sounds like it already is pretty healing, but I, I think it's going to be really cool to see, uh, what you're able to do and, and who you're able to help through your experiences. But, uh, but thank you so much for, for taking time to come on. No, thank you. I, I really appreciate what you're doing and giving people voices that didn't think they had one. And, you know, and even people like me just seeing that there are other people that have almost yeah. the same stories, almost every story that I've listened to so far, I can relate to certain things and that's been, that has been extremely healing for me. So I appreciate you for sure. Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at preacher boys doc. Additional information can always be found on preacher boys When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.